Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. Uh, I'll never forget listening to a gentleman who did something extraordinary. He took the Bible and because he was a Greek scholar, Hebrew scholar and so forth, he took the Bible and he translated it, became a lifelong work. While he was doing that, he was also a pastor. And because he was known for his writing as well as his speaking, um, I got the opportunity to hear him speak one day. And he was reflecting on 40 years of pastoring. And he said, and I had no idea, really, and I used to be insecure about it, what impact I would have until somebody came up who had listened to him in his first few years of his pastoral journey and said, you changed my life. And so when I heard a gentleman who has an extraordinary background in uh, our country through 9-11, through our healthcare system, with his incredible perspective on uh, on um, efficiencies in both leadership and systems within the healthcare industry. And I hear him quote Henry Adams, that a teacher affects eternity, but no one can tell where their influence stops. I, it deeply resonated with me. It reminded me of that pastor. By the way, his name is um, Eugene Peters, Peterson. And uh, so I wanted to get Tom Mayer on the line. Tom uh, is an incredible speaker, a prolific author. He was one of the command physicians during 9-11, dealing with crisis management during that time. He speaks on burnout, one of his classic books in the healthcare industry, but is really more of a leadership book. And I just quite frankly wanted to sit down by my virtual fireplace and pick his brain. Tom, great having you on The Great Conversation. Oh, Ron, it's a complete honor. I, the work you're doing is so important and, and so meaningful in terms of turning ideas into action that it's a privilege. Uh, the folks who've been on your show are the Super Bowl of, um, of idea generators and idea uh, implementers. So it, it's an honor to be on. I look forward to it. Well, if it's the Super Bowl, I just heard, I just hope there's a repeat. That's all. I I do want to ask you something, because as I trolled you, uh, I saw that Tom Peters, who was one of the classic business authors of our time, uh, called you gasp worthy. Tell me what he meant by that. Well, you'd have to ask Tom. He's a huge uh, friend and mentor to me for and and took to my uh, ideas and work for reasons which surpass imagination, but started with the work I did at the Pentagon and he had asked me to speak to some of his conferences. You know, he's he's so uh, funny. I I've had a company that I founded called uh, Best Practices based on the science of clinical excellence, the art of uh, customer service and the business of execution. And, and Tom calls me up and says, Mayor, he always use last names, you know, Mayor, you got a lot of stones. He used a different word. Um, 
you know, you, you create a company called Best Practices, you better be ready to deliver. Uh, so he very kindly wrote the foreword to some of the books, but, uh, but that was one that was really about how do you hardwire flow into your life? How do you hardwire flow uh, into a healthcare system? Uh, and I think that's why he, he mentioned uh, the term gasworthy, but uh, I'm sure he has other errors in judgment as well. Well, it's so funny because, you know, you break down this word, you know, discipline that's used in so many different contexts, um, like discipleship, for example, discipline, the idea of a practice learned and repeated over time. And, and I wondered where that that word hardwiring came from, because you mentioned it in one of your books, hardwiring. So tell me about that a little bit around culture, systems, leadership. Tell, tell me about hardwiring. Well, to me, it comes from just what you said, that all of the things in, in healthcare that I mentioned um, are ideas, but they have to be translated into action. How do you translate them into action? They're disciplines. Uh, Aristotle correctly said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not a virtue, but a habit. And it struck me that, you know, to use, I'm not great with electrons as, as my wife and kids would tell you, but, but I knew at that time that, that that concept of hardwiring things into the system was meant to reflect the fact that they're the business of execution is just that, a discipline, a, a, a set of ideas that can be translated specifically into action. So when it comes to change, it strikes me, first of all, people talk about change management, which is silly to me because management is maintaining the current system functioning in the directions it's intended to go. Whereas uh, leading leadership, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, is about change, particularly non-incremental innovative change. Um, and that has to be around a combination of the culture, uh, what I call hardwiring flow, which is systems and processes. And that just means hardwiring flow, you know, the book is 240 pages long. I'm very fond of it because, well, I wrote it, but uh, along with my partner, Kirk Jensen, but all it, all it says is very simple. Stop doing stupid stuff. Start doing smart stuff. That's it. And then finally, the, the personal aspect of that, which is so critical, particularly if we're talking about burnout or, and resilience, but about change. Fundamentally, how do you change? So hardwiring flow was meant to be able to say, how do you identify what stupid stuff is? Then you ask the people who are doing that stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not a C-suite obligation. It's the obligation of the C-suite to get down to the trenches and talk to the people who do the work, whether in healthcare, whether in tech, whether manufacturing, uh, business, uh, finance, in any aspect of life, the people who are doing the work will know, number one, what the stupid stuff is, and number two, what the smart stuff would be. So it seems like that, if you think about it, it, when it comes to the world and the people in it, uh, change is the only constant. Things are constantly changing. Environmentally, politically, socially, things are always changing. So if that's happening, happening in the external world and we have a company that lives to serve that external world, that means, in effect, change. There is going to be an erosion 
in uh, efficiencies related to those systems and processes. They're going to be, and you have to be aware of them because if they don't meet the times, you're going to see an erosion in value. You're not going to see the same kind of value generation coming out of those processes. How, I mean, in your experience, how, how long can a good discipline system work without changing and tweaking and evolving that over time? Well, it's an excellent point, Ron. I would say uh, how long is, if, if that question comes up once, then you're already failing. You're failing, that system is failing the external customer, but more importantly, the internal customer, the team that generates whatever product or service is involved with that. And, and you're correct uh, to a point that we're not just in, the, that the only constant is change, but that the pace of change is accelerating exponentially, not arithmetically, so that we're in the midst of constant cataclysmic change. And I think one of the great insights, and I know you share it, from all those books on your shelf behind you and distilled into action is that cataclysmic change from the outside means there's cataclysmic change and must be on the inside. Because too many of our organizations that seem between culture and systems and processes, hardwiring flow, it's what I call the, the discrepancy between the words on the walls and the happenings in the halls. And people understand that. They see that disconnect between what I and what our, the entire internal and external teams are being told and what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis. Because as you know, and you've said before, without, without resistance, there's no change. Someone says, oh, I had this great change uh, initiative uh, and it was so great. Well, how did it go? Did anybody resist it? No. Well, that's not change. That's adopting best practices, current best practices, a little faster than the, than the lady or the gentleman down the street. But when do best practices become an excuse not to change? Oh, it's, a, it's an excellent uh, question. And, and the critical thing, I think, is to help understand that, call it science, art, and business, or, or any other way that you want, call it culture, hardwiring, flow, and, and, and personal, um, it, it embedded into the organization during the hiring process and the re-recruitment process, more on that uh, concept if you'd like, is change. Meaning don't come here unless you are willing to, not only to be coached and mentored towards better ways of doing things, but to coach and mentor others towards what better ways there might be. And that requires innovation and innovation does not occur, in my opinion, at the speed of genius, at the speed of intelligence, and certainly not at the speed of electrons. It occurs at the speed of trust because if people don't trust each other to fail, then we're lost. Samuel Beckett said this beautifully of all things, a playwright, try, fail, try again, fail again, fail better. So I think having as a central part of the, both the culture, the words on the walls, and the systems and processes and the people, the happenings in the halls, that change is the constant. We want you to show us how it can be done better. Not only that, we demand as a part of the organization. And my experience in the companies I built and the people with whom I work is that they embrace that. They, they are not afraid to come in with, with crazy ideas. 
you know, it's so funny because you take this term hardwiring, which feels like a solid, it just, it, it hardwired, it just, it almost feels like once it's in there, you can't change it, but you, you've, I love, I love words are real things. So I, I love it when people play paradoxically with words like hardwiring. What you're, you're really seeking to do here is you're moving toward a best practice, a proven best practice with the discipline to follow it, which is your hardwiring flow. But what people miss, I think, is you're also hardwiring agility and a, a, a adaptation and and uh, imp empathy and <laughs> many of these other cultural traits that allow for a highly innovative company to respond at the time of need. If you do that along with the best practice you have at any given moment, you 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 have the yin and the yang. Does that make the? Make oh sense? no, totally. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, the great um, the great psychiatrist Carl Jung said, "What's true in the morning is a lie by the afternoon." not tomorrow. Uh, and, and by the way, my beautiful and brilliant wife, Maureen, has this incredible t-shirt that says forever young, J-U-N-G. <laughs> that's exactly how she lives her life is forever young on uh, that double entendre. But I think that's precisely what we're talking about, that having people understand uh, that seam between insecurity of knowing what to do and how to do it but at the same time, understanding that show us a better way. It, it's, it's obligatory among us as team members. And as you know, I worked with the NFL and have for the last 21 years, that team concept, a lot of people say team, but they don't play team. And I think that's what we have to spend so much of our time doing is playing team and asking others is does this feel like a team? Do you feel valued? Does the organization go forward? So uh, if you can't make your employees and teammates happy, you'll never make the customer happy. That's right. That's right. I love it. Thank you. You, um, in many of your um, uh, discourses, your, your speaking engagements and your consulting, you, um, you really do talk about what I'm gonna call the birth of leadership. And, and the reason I'm using that term, that's me saying the birth of leadership is that light that goes on, if, if properly lit, when a person suddenly recognizes, I am a leader, I am a leader. I, I don't have to be given a title, it's not titular, I'm a leader. And I, you know, and you speak to that in many different ways. Tell me about the path to a leadership consciousness. What do you think that path looks like for us? Well, well first of all, um, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. And uh, I think that's insightful uh, to the, what you said regarding the way I've tried to do things. I, I would say, start with the concept that leadership is worthless but leading is priceless. And what I mean by that is leadership is a noun. Leadership is, is all those wonderful books on your shelves and mine and, and our listeners' shelves as well. Uh, a set of slides, set of ideas, uh, a podcast like this. But leading is priceless because that's a verb and it's a verb that can only be given in the active voice. There is no passive voice form 
of leading. And, and so people ask me all the time, what do I need to do? How do I need to do it to become a leader like you and to join the leadership ranks? And my answer is you already are in those ranks because one of the recent books I wrote, uh, 300 pages, but I can distill it down to about 33 words, three points. Number one, every person, every team member is a leader. Lead yourself, lead your team. Number two, every team member is a performance athlete, just like my athletes in the NFL, involved in a cycle of performance, rest, and recovery. Performance, rest, and recovery. Invest in yourself, invest in your team. And number three, the work begins within. So we're all, all of us listening, and it, the uh, our leaders already, we are leading ourselves, leading our teams, but to sustain particularly that pace of change in a cataclysmic change environment requires us to reinvest in ourselves and to be unashamedly willing to invest in ourselves because we can only invest in ourselves if we can invest in others. I mean, we can only invest in others if we can invest in ourselves. And that's why I say the work begins with them. So um, although there's I'm sure many different paths. If I asked you then to take those three things and hardwire it, help me hardwire that into my life, what suggestions would you make to me? Well, I would say, first of all, is, is the voice of recognition of, of understanding that um, Aristotle, we are what we repeatedly do. So as we enter any day, any action, any meeting, um, thinking, you know, I am a leader, so are the other people in this room. What do I want them to think when, when this is over? How do I want them to feel? Uh, and because if you don't know before you go in, you're not gonna know coming out or during the course of that. I think understanding that uh, resistance, all that resistance is, is uncertainty. It's someone saying, I know how to do what I'm doing right now, I don't know how to do it in this new world you're asking us to create. You know, lie. what's true in the morning is a lie by the afternoon. And so embracing that to say thank you for that resistance, because together we're going to discover that path towards certainty in an uncertain world. But it can only be done together, and it can only be done with you as the leading co-author of what that's going to look like. And then I think at the end of the day, um, Marty Seligman, the great Marty Seligman and, and others have talked about this concept of three good things. You know, we've all been through it. We all will go through it. Crushing days when, you know, whether it's the Pentagon or inhalational anthrax, the first outbreak of bioterrorism that I had the privilege of leading. At the end of the day, being able to say three good things. Yes, things were tough, but I'm not going to make a list of the 25 bad things that happened. I'm going to make a list of the three good things. And those can be simple things, you know, I, I made my son smile. You know, my wife told me she loved me. Uh, you know, I, I helped a friend who really needed help. And then, you know, just connecting that to an action, a single one, then that's being encyclopedic that you did that helped generate those three good things. You know, you know, these studies as well as I do are better. You know, that's better than Zoloft for people who have depression. I mean, literally, it's not just a punch. That's the punchline to numerous scientific studies. So um, that's, that's my general thoughts. Well, 
if you don't mind, I, I'm going to try to summarize for myself, and hopefully it helps others listening to this. I think what I just learned, if I were going to deploy um, uh, Dr. Tom's recipe here, I'd wake up in the morning and go, I am a leader. I'd say it every morning. And then I'd spend time in investing in myself on what's working for me as a leader today. And can I lead better? I'd be investing in myself in something. It might be a new book I read, listening to uh, one of Tom's speeches. I'd, I'd be investing in myself. And then I'd help others. And then at the end of the day, I'd celebrate with the three good things. <laughs> oh, that's very well said. That's very well said. You know, I think okay? we, we, we certainly can't, you know, it's funny because we, we often use the term inspiration and, and inspire. And, you know, if you think about that from the physiologic standpoint, you know, from, from an attribute standpoint, we don't say expire, but we do say expiration. So if we're, if we wanted to expire, meaning taking inspiration and putting it into action, and I think I just made that term up, then, then you know, we've got to pull in the oxygen necessary on inspiration and blow off the CO2, the toxic byproduct and expiration. And that, that balance is, is a balance we just need, constantly need to, to rekindle those fires and, and understand fundamentally the nature of life being precisely that. It doesn't matter what business you're in. Doesn't matter what business you're in. And I love, uh, there was a gentleman I had uh, whose father went through COPD and he was trying to help his father breathe better, right? And it led to him using breathing as an exercise for getting centered. So when you said that, it brought that to mind. I called it the podcast, The Breath of Life. And Ooh, wow, that's great. Uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful conversation we have. And I just, but I love your give back here. I love your give back where leading is a verb, leadership's a noun. You have to practice it. You have to breathe in, breathe out your lessons from it. And uh, this is why this has been a great conversation with Tom there. Well, let me, get, let me just give you one little story that I think you'll enjoy as an emergency physician. You talked about your friend whose father has COPD and, and they have their retainers. They, the, the nature of their physiology driven by their anatomy is that they can't blow out. And sometimes when they get so uh, in, in extremis, you're going to love this. What you do as an emergency physician is you don't reach for a ventilator. You know, you don't reach for a, a, the pharmacology. You have to grab them, hug them, squeeze them and blow the air out for them. And I just think that's a wonderful metaphor for what we have to do uh, in leading our lives is sometimes you have to just reach in, give that hug, squeeze to help them do what they can't do themselves. Wow. What a great way to end a great conversation. Thank you, Tom Mayer. I can't wait to talk to you again. Great. Thanks, Ron. It was a privilege.